Coffee House Shots is sponsored by NatWest, the bank that's helping small businesses build back better and greener. The transition to net zero could create 130,000 new jobs for small and medium-sized businesses. That's why NatWest is aiming to lend $100 billion in sustainable financing by 2025. Find out more about climate support for businesses at natwest.com slash climate. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. And it is crime week for the government. Number 10 plan a series of announcements about how they plan to tackle crime. And to kick things off, we're talking about drugs. James, what is under proposal here? So the government's view is that you know nearly half of they calculate that nearly half of all acquisitive crime is committed by, by people addicted to drugs, largely crack and heroin, and that almost half of, roughly around half of murders have some link to drugs. And so the thinking goes, if you can deal with drugs, that will cut crime. Now, I, there are kind of three bits to this approach. One is clamping down on these county lines, drugs gangs. And some of the ideas in there are a little bit gimmicky, like, you know, if they find a drug dealer's mobile phone, they're going to text everyone telling them that, you know, that all the numbers in the phone telling them that drugs are illegal and the like. But there's also no doubt that county lines, drugs gangs are one of the things that are bringing violent crime to places that hadn't previously seen it, because they are bringing much harder drugs to often fairly small towns, seaside towns and the like. The second, which I think is, is a good thing if done well, is an attempt to increase the amount of drug rehabilitation available to people, try and help addicts get off drugs. I think one of the big challenges to that, though, is how many drugs are circulating in prisons. It's quite hard to get people clean in prison if there are drugs available there. I think that's the problem. And the third thing, which I think has a tiny bit of a whiff of back to basics to it, is Boris Johnson talking about taking away the passport or driving license from kind of recreational drug users. The idea is that, 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 that you know people think they can do cocaine with, with kind of relative impunity despite it being illegal. And so they want to make the punishments hit people's lives. I think the issue with this is it is inevitably going to turn into every cabinet minister and minister who does interviews on this being asked about their own personal drug use and what answer they are prepared to give. I think this one has the potential to get bogged down in some difficulty, put it mildly. And Isabel, on that aspect, it does seem from the language coming from the Prime Minister, but also ministers out and the broadcast rounds, that there is this effort to, you know, tackle middle class drug users and move the focus to, to that, or at least make sure there is some focus on it. You were hearing things along the lines, of, you know, you should be as likely to be arrested, you know, in Sloan Square for taking drugs as um, you would be on a council estate. Do you think the government's trying to put this as part of levelling up then? Oh, that's an interesting perspective on it. This is part of the the levelling up agenda. I think, as James says, it it is a risky strategy, even though actually in terms of well fairness, uh, rather than just cracking down on cracking down on people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds, actually making clear to people who think that they can be sort of party cocaine users, that there are consequences for them as well. But it has a risk because those people obviously, you know, some of them work in Parliament and some of them may have, have taken drugs before entering government, for instance. And Back to Basics was John Major's relaunch of his government, which actually wasn't, as people now 
misremember it as a, a, a relaunch of people talking about how great their marriages were or anything like that. But it swiftly descended into a long line of different scandals involving cabinet ministers and other prominent conservatives and their extramarital affairs, their unacknowledged children and so on, and basically completely derailed the message that John Major had intended to get out. And so we've had this Sunday Times investigation, which has found traces of drug use in Parliament, some quite striking quotes in the papers over the weekend about people in Parliament uh, knowing where to get uh, not just cannabis, but also cocaine on the estate, uh, the Speaker launching an investigation into into what's going on. We've had a lot of discussion of alcoholism on the parliamentary estate. I think it's widely accepted that there are a lot of people in Parliament who drink too much, either regularly or on a sort of binge drinking basis. But there's far less discussion of drug use in Parliament. And I think this, again, has the potential, given the the general climate around MPs' standards and behaviour, this has the potential to become a, a much bigger story. And James, in other news, I think the other big issue coming up at the weekend is Omicron and whether this new strain will become the dominant strain, warnings that this um, could be as it won't happen. And as per usual, lots of papers today asking, will this affect Christmas? Will it? If you're planning to stay in this country for Christmas, I think you're unlikely to see much of an impact. If you are planning to go abroad or you've got people coming to see you, then I think it is. You know, we've already got tougher travel rules coming in on Tuesday and I think that that is, I, I would be very surprised if when these travel rules, rules are reviewed, they go. I mean, the other way in which it could affect Christmas is that if you have been in contact with someone who has Omicron rather than any of the previous strains of COVID, we are back to people who are just contacts of people who have COVID having to self-isolate for 10 days. So obviously, the larger proportion of, of cases that are this, this, this new strain, the more people are going to end up getting pinged. Although the view among the kind of scientists seem to be that this will be more of an issue in, in January than in December. I mean, what we are all waiting to find out about is whether it is milder or not. Anthony Fauci said it was too early to tell, but sounded a relatively optimistic note. This is the, the, kind of the, the head of a US COVID response on Sunday on this question. So I think we, we, we just wait to see because I think it, it, if it is not, then I think there are clearly going to be some problems considering how transmissible it seems to be. But if it does turn out to be milder, then I think we could have a perhaps a slightly better January than we're expecting. Is what we've also heard from Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert, who's warned that future pandemics could be more lethal than the current COVID crisis. There is a sense, and I think we've seen it in a few things, such as a recent story about how the government's vaccine plant is up for sale. You've had members of the vaccine task force, former members, Clive Dix, others warning that the government maybe is losing focus. Do you think there is a sense of complacency at the moment in government or health services that, you know, the worst pandemic has come. I'm I'm not sure it's complacency. I think it's just reverting to the norm of politics, which is to not think too much about the future because there are so many immediate domestic problems and, and rows that big problems like pandemics just get put on the important but not urgent shelf and never really dealt with. And 
because of the way that our political system works, the way that all political systems work, really, but particularly ours, there aren't really consequences for not thinking long term because you're not there when the long term happens. And so this warning from Sarah Gilbert that she said we cannot allow a situation where we have gone through all we have gone through and then find that the enormous economic losses we have sustained mean that there is still no funding for pandemic preparedness. I think it's it is a real risk that there is such jubilation that Covid is retreating when that does happen that there is less of a sense of urgency about stopping the next pandemic uh, beyond talking about it and I think that this warning is very timely and I think it probably has more force than any warnings that we are going to get through this eventual public inquiry into Covid. I've been talking to quite a few senior figures in government and in the health service over the past few weeks about this public inquiry and they all seem to regard it largely as pointless and they think it's you know going to be another chill cot where you've got a sort of lawyer figure who goes through hundreds of thousands of emails and interviews every single person in the world and in 10 years time comes up with 436 recommendations of which there are so many that it's very difficult to trace whether those recommendations are being followed up but also actually it takes so long that the people uh, responsible have moved on from government and the new set of uh, politicians in charge have got other priorities and the public are interested in something else so I think she's put her finger on something that that is a problem across politics more widely uh, which is this short-termist thinking and you can understand how anyone falls into that. And just finally, James, the issue that will be dominating the Foreign Secretary's time this week relates to Ukraine. The report saying Putin is ready to invade Ukraine in the new year and Putin will hold crisis talks today with Joe Biden. How seriously is the UK government taking this threat? I mean, the UK government is very concerned about this. I think they have a real worry that in January you could see Russian action. I mean, it's very, very hard to work out precisely what Vladimir Putin intends. As Mike McFall, who is the former US ambassador to Moscow, points out, one of the difficulties that Western intelligence analysts has is that Vladimir Putin doesn't quite know what he's going to do yet. Probably hasn't made his decision about what, if anything, he is prepared to do. Always the question of Russia is, to what extent is this a kind of attempt to get attention and, you know, the, you know he wants to get Joe Biden to sit down with him at this summit and that, that that's what he wants. But I think there is a cause for greater concern, which is that I think that Russia sees an opportunity in this US desire to shift towards China. It looks at the fact that the US was prepared to get out of Afghanistan in the very crude way that it did and thinks, well, that means that the US is going to be less bothered about Europe. That opens up some opportunities. Also, I think there is a threat to Putin in that the, the current government in Kiev, the Ukrainian government, and these are obviously relative terms, is more competent and less corrupt than its predecessors and is, is proving better at fostering a sense of Ukrainian nationhood. It is led by someone who is a native-born, um, native Russian speaker. And I think that is a concern to Putin, which is you know, a successful Ukrainian state. And I also think the other thing that is causing a lot of concern is that Russia is becoming increasingly concerned about the possibility of confrontation with Turkey. And the Ukrainians are buying a lot of drones from Turkey. And Russia, I think, is particularly worried about this because in the war in the Nuruni Karabakh, what you saw was that the Russian back force was, 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 was essentially militarily defeated 
because of these Turkish drones. And I mean, so I mean, this is another cause for Putin's concern. I think he, what he wants is, is he wants the West to promise not, never to admit Ukraine to NATO, to essentially never to, to not sell Ukraine the kind of weaponry that would allow Ukraine to defend itself. I think this is all going to be very difficult. I think the challenge for the UK here, is, as you wrote on, on, on the weekend, Katie, is the, the UK has been the most out there in terms of talking about arms sales to Ukraine, talking about defending Ukraine. And I think that that is the the question for the UK now becomes, you know, to what extent are the Americans prepared to cut a deal with Moscow over Ukraine's head, which I think would be very difficult for Britain to accept. And also, but then if that doesn't happen, what happens if in the new year Putin were to invade Ukraine or to um, or, you know, to send Russian forces in, you know, to take the more moderate end of the spectrum, Russian forces into eastern Ukraine? What is the UK actually prepared to do in those circumstances? I mean, that is going to be the big question because the, the UK's rhetoric has been so strong. But I think, it's, I think it would be quite hard to say that just a few more sanctions would, would, be, would, be a, would, would match that rhetoric. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening.